Having Sage approved audio for our car rides is a literal lifesaver for my nervous system. And I love making lists of podcasts to share with him when he's ready. I was so excited to hear about a new show called Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, math, geared toward the six plus crowd. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time traveling adventures. Recently, we had some family visiting, and on our way to dinner, we popped on an episode of Mysteries About True Histories, math, with my niece and nephew in the car. In this episode, Max and Molly travel back in time to solve a mystery from the order of the problem solvers, along with lots of kid humor mixed in. It was a fun way to enjoy our car ride together and opened the door for some interesting conversation about history and understanding some of the mysteries of the past. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, the perfect length for car rides and meal times, and stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. You're listening to Voices of Your Village, and today we're going to dive into what kindergarten readiness really looks like. I got to hang out with the dreamboat, Susie Allison from Busy Toddler. I got to hung out with Susie forever. We speak the same language. Also, she's hilarious. If you're not following Busy Toddler already, it's an incredible follow over on Instagram. Or she's an incredible follow. Sorry, Susie, for calling you it. And I, I loved this conversation so much because we got to talk about the history of kindergarten and how we even got where we are and what it looks like to move forward and what really matters when we're looking at child development and short and long-term outcomes. We got to break down some data and science and talk about what it does look like to be ready for kindergarten and how you can be supporting your tiny humans in getting there. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts and feedback. Will you take a screenshot of you tuning in and tag Susie and I, she's at Busy Toddler, and I'm at seed.and.so over on Instagram, and let me know your favorite takeaways or something that you're curious about or want to learn more about. I would love to continue this conversation with you over in my DMs. I wanted to let you know that we have a special pre-order bonus happening right now for the book. So if you snag Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, my book that's publishing with HarperCollins in October, if you go snag it right now at seedandsew.org slash book, then come right back there after you purchase it and give me your name and email and your order number. And I will send you a guide to surviving summer. What does it really look like to navigate the schedule changes, the transitions, the sun changes, the back to school stuff as it comes up? Like we are here to help you navigate this season. And I have a complete guide for you. Head over to seedandso.org slash book to purchase Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, and then let me know so I can send you that bonus. All right, folks, let's dive in.
Hey there, I'm Alyssa Blass Campbell. I'm a mom with a master's degree in early childhood education and co-creator of the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method. I'm here to walk alongside you through the messy, vulnerable parts of being humans raising other humans with deep thoughts and actionable tips. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Voices of Your Village. Today, I get to hang out with Susie Allison. She's a former teacher with a master's in early childhood education and a mom to three kids. Her mission is to bring hands-on play and learning back to childhood, support others in their parenting journey, and help everyone make it to nap time. Susie runs Busy Toddler over on Instagram, one of my favorite follows. Susie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a little early, but I'm I'm here. You're here. You're here I'm living here. that East Coast time life. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, well, I'm super stoked because I just was chatting with one of our seed search directors, and last year I did a workshop for them on for kindergarten for the um, parents of kids who were going into kindergarten who were leaving their preschool program, and really on this kindergarten readiness topic. And this year they were like can we actually chat about preschool readiness um, this summer? And I had the same reaction. I was like, and then they're like, oh no, we want to talk about what actually does that mean? That like, we don't care if they know their numbers or their letters. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like, okay, now I'm into it. (laughs) Correct. Um, But I'm so jazzed to have this conversation because we were just, I feel like diving into it as a team. What do you think most people think kindergarten readiness is? I think most people think kindergarten readiness is like this very basic checklist of really what I call low level academics, which are usually memorized. Do they know their colors? Do they know their shapes? Do they know numbers? You know, how high can they count? Can they write their name? Really basic things like that. And as you know, preaching to the choir, it so misses the mark on what kindergarten readiness actually could look like. And so I'm beyond excited to have this conversation with you. I, why do you think we have that? Where do you think it came from that little checklist? I think it's a product of the changing standards in kindergarten. Over the last decade, we saw a massive shift in kindergarten, and this started around the 2012s with um, Common Core state standards came in. And that was a top-down model of creation where they basically, the committee that created those looked at high school and said, well, what do we need for a child to be college ready? And in building college ready, they started creating a list of academic skills that children would need. And by the time they got down to the kindergarten area, they had left this really big gap of what a child would have to have made up in those kind of age four to six years. And because there was no one on that committee that had ever taught early childhood education, there was no expert on that committee to say, um, no, (laughs) (laughs) these were put in place and, and they were bought off on, they were not designed by a teaching committee. And I always want to say that these were not made by teachers Mm -hmm. and they were put into place and it created this huge gap that kids needed to to have made up in order for the path to senior year of high school work. And so we put this idea of being college ready essentially onto the backs of five-year-olds and said, well, you need to step up, quote unquote, in order for this to work for the entirety of your educational career. And it created this feeling, I think, within parents and within early childhood education that we, we were powerless and we didn't have a choice. So we really had to just step up and 
And if these experts had said that my child must be reading at this age, then I guess they're right. Well, the problem is they weren't right. And, you know, we know that through research and science and and just teaching kids to read. <laughs> we know this, these kinds of things. But it did. It created this really mountain of problems that that we've been scraping our way under for, you know, a decade now trying to rewrite what early childhood education should look like and what should kindergarten education look like. And we can see in some districts and some states, the tides are swinging back to kind of a more play-based model. And then in other areas, we're doubling down. So I think what's important for parents is to really understand that this bill of goods that you may have been sold on, it wasn't actually the best bill. It wasn't. Yeah. And let's talk about what kindergarten readiness could look like. And let's move away from kind of this cognitive academic focus into a more balanced approach where we add back in those foundational and those social emotional learning skills. And again, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but <laughs> well, I think yeah. I think academics, they're measurable, right? It's like when yeah. you go to the pediatrician when you have a newborn and they're like obsessed with the weight or whatever. And because yeah. it feels like something you can measure when so much about being a human isn't measurable. Yeah, and, we we love quantifiable data. We love correct. it. Correct. And we, and so when I, when I look at this, I'm like, oh, it makes sense that they were like, well, what can we measure? What can we, oh, you know, your letter's great. Like check. And I'm curious, <laughs> curious. Is that really the word um, judgmental of, um, <laughs> of what we've seen? If we, if we do look at now, like folks who are really into data, if we're looking at this data from when we saw this shift with the common core, and if we do want to measure out, we call these mini stones to milestones in the book of like, if the milestone is they leave high school with X skill and we're doing the mini stones, right? You're working backward to like, all right, what do they need at each grade level, et cetera? Um, what are the mini stones that lead to that milestone? Are we are we doing that? Are these mini stones actually reaching those milestones? I would love to see that data because uh, I, I'm going to wager a guess that no, like we're not seeing we're, that. We're not, we're not, you know, we can look at, if we just look at one specific piece of data and that's the nation's report card that's put out by the government, it's the national assessment of educational progress, the NAEP. And they track data on kids in fourth grade. Let's specifically look at that because that's really the closest age range we have to, to these kindergartners. And since the Common Core standards were put into place around the 2012 era, we haven't seen a change. And in fact, in many cases, we've seen data that is showing that trends in reading and math are going down, not up. It depends on you know the category and the kids you're looking at. But overall, this has not been a slam dunk. It has not been the success that Common Core thought it was going to be. And so this idea of these huge academics in kindergarten to front load a child and then that that would in some way make the child smart forever if you just hyper pushed in academics, you know, when they're four, five and six, that then that will make the child smarter when they're nine, 10 and then 15, 16. That data isn't there. And and the data we're looking at, this is pre-pandemic too. So, you, you know, you can't argue, well, we had this major disruption in education. Yes, we had a major disruption in education, but we're talking about the decade before the pandemic. And, and if we just even look at that area, we did not see increases. We did not see test scores rise. In many cases, we saw them completely stagnant or fall for really one of the first times in in, in our education history as we've been tracking this kind of data. So. 
again, not to overuse the word data, but it's there to say that this didn't necessarily work in the way that it certainly was was built or that we were sold that it was going to work and that it was going to raise student achievement if we front load kindergartners with all this. It, it didn't. So I think we have to start looking at a different way and a different approach to how we're teaching children in early childhood. And and I and I don't have an answer for parents. You know, parents come to me and say, well, what is the answer? What do I what do I do? And you know, we get involved, we we listen to our school district, we we start asking questions, and it also starts at home in us giving children and maybe a different set of skills than we've been told. You know, we've been told, well, they need to be flashcarded on their alphabet or they need to be flashcarded on their math skills. They need to come in knowing how to add and subtract. It's like, well, maybe instead, you know, they can learn that kind of stuff through play. And maybe instead we could work on how to solve peer problems or how to speak to an adult and things like that, that these really foundational skills. Yeah. The social emotional skills. I had two things came up. One, I just got a DM the other day from, um, uh, she's a literacy, um, specialist in a school district. And she was like, I recently started following and essentially just kind of abandoned what I'd been taught and started Mm -hmm. just focusing on how do I help this kid feel safe and calm? Yeah. And she was like, we've made such huge traction. And I was like, yeah, we can't learn things when we're in a dysregulated state. And so much of what's happening throughout the day in a school system is there's a lot of stimulation. There's a lot of dysregulation. And then we're like, and learn these things. And it's just like from a brain science perspective, it's like, it doesn't make sense. I also think it's really hard. I'm, I'm on a few state committees here in Vermont looking at like statewide systems and we, one of the things that I've continued to observe is that it's really hard to say, man, we invested a lot of money and time into something and we're going to admit it's not working out the way that we thought it would. And we're going to try something different. In fact, what I often see is like, maybe if we had more money invested into this program that isn't working, that like, if we look at where this program is and what's happening now, the data isn't great. (laughs) And they're like, let's double down. Double down. Easier to do that and save face. Like it's emotionally easier than it is to say, man, we made a bad investment. (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't the right program. And I'm nervous that like, it's so just from what I've seen from behind the scenes of like, oh yeah, we have this model or we have this framework, we have this, whatever that we've invested in. And I am constantly at the meeting saying like, do we have data on what's happening now with the schools that have access to that? And they're like, oh, we're gathering. It's like, it's been 20 years of that program. What do you mean we're gathering it now? Like what, in what yeah. world do, are we not just going to talk about what are the outcomes? And yeah, yeah, I'm afraid that it's going to be a real long road to people just saying like, you know what? We made a mistake. We made a mistake. And, and, and I think the thing that you know, I, I keep saying like, well, you know, back in 2012 when Common Core, this started in the 80s. It, it did. It started with, you know, the Reagan administration pushed through, you know, a nation at risk. That was this first report that kind of came out that said that essentially vilified education and said that, well, all the problems with the, uh, you know, economy come back to the way kids are being taught and things like that. And the data on that wasn't great. And it's, you know, um, it you know it turned out to not be maybe the best interpretation of of data, but 
but the ball had been rolling and then it, and it rolled right through to no child left behind back mm-hmm. in 2000 with the Bush administration. And it rolled to race to the, the top with the Obama administration. And then eventually we get to this point where, you know, we're at the 2010s, 2012s, and we have a business person come in and say, I have this idea for common core and it gets funded largely by the Gates Foundation and it gets pushed into public education. So it's, it's, it is amazing the, the money and the double down and the fact that this has been an issue for f- almost 40 years. And, and we've, we're only now at this point where we're saying, you know, parents like us are, and, and educators are saying, wait, like, l- you know, listen to us. We, we have some thoughts, you know, you know, I'm not in the classroom anymore, but teachers are in the classroom saying, we, you know, we know how to teach a child to read. We know how to help support a child to help them be successful. And it's, you know, we need to k- help them feel safe and help them be attached and help them, you know, have communication skills and, and all these other things. And it's not just a test score. It's, it's a person's life. It's not just, data it's not you know there's just so much more that we need to be looking at and and again it, this has been an issue for a long time and and like you i'm i'm worried because we have a history as you know as i just laid out of instead of reversing course of just pulling a double down and that that's a hard place to be looking at and it is and and that's why i think it's so important if parents can start to understand that there may be a different way to look at education and there may be a different way to look at, at how your child is growing and developing in these early years than just looking at this very like memorized checklist and to say that, okay, well, once they learn their, you know, how to identify a shape, then they're good. They're ready to go send them or, you know, or, or they're, they've done it, you know, that they've yeah. crossed the finish line and, and, and to look at this just a lot, in a, a much more different frame. It's so frustrating to spend the money and effort to buy your kids clothes just to have them grow out of the size within a week or have your kids complain that they itch, pinch, or just aren't comfortable. If you're with me on this, you've got to check out Posh Peanut. Their sensitive skin-friendly clothes are made from viscose from bamboo, stretch with your kid as they grow, and they're also made to last. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, super cute clothing for kids and families. It is the softest thing, y'all. The design is all done in-house with different patterns and it came in the mail and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to wear this for myself every day. Their luxe women's pajamas and robes were all that I wanted to wear postpartum for nursing and hanging out on the couch with Mila. It helps so much that the fabric is breathable and chemical-free, which means they're delicate against Mila's sensitive skin too. And I totally get why Posh Peanut is loved by over 1 million parents. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code VILLAGE. Go to poshpeanut.com village and use promo code VILLAGE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com village, promo code VILLAGE. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. 
BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. Well, and the reality is like there's a, if we're talking about content, you can forever learn content. There's some, I don't care if a kid knows the life cycle of a butterfly. Like, I don't care if they ever know it, right? Like ever in their whole life, if that's never something they're exposed to, I really don't care. What I do care is like, do they know what it feels like to have a feeling? Do they have tools to say, hey, I need help? Uh, Like those are things that they're gonna need for the rest of their life. And I think one of the things that's lost in the content conversation is that if we build those tools, if a kid has tools to feel safe in their environment, if they have a strong attachment within this space, if they feel supported, if they feel valued, if they feel loved and worthy, and they have tools then to, then they can build these tools for peer interaction. They can build tools for memorization. They can learn all the content in the world when they're able to navigate from a place of regulation, which starts with that safety. I, what do you think that parents should be asking as they're approaching kindergarten, whether they're asking the school, the teacher, or even like themselves? I think they need to, I would start with yourself and just ask, you know, who is this child and, you know, what has this child learned? I think a lot of times we get stuck on what our neighbor's child has done or what our sister's child has done. And we forget that all kids are on different paths. I think we do a really amazing job when kids are babies, especially and toddlers of saying, oh, kids grow different. They're all on a different trajectory. Yeah, your kid rolled over at this time. Mine rolled over at this time. And and they walked at this time. And they, But then once they hit kindergarten, then we suddenly decide, oh, no, they need to be doing everything at the exact same time and on the exact same schedule and forget everything that you learned from birth to age five about how children develop on, on different paths. Throw it out the window. Because now they all need to be, you know, you know, onto this very rigid schedule. And that's where I would really start is just by looking at your child and looking at the progress day by day with that child. And, you know, think back six months ago on how that child was doing. Look at their drawings from six months ago. You're, you're looking for progress. You're looking for, are they making progress on their path? And, and I think that's something to always be considering with small children is to look at that individual child, because again, they are not going to be developing the same way that the person at church is, or the, you know, kid on the softball team is, they are on their own path. And so I do think that this starts a lot at home with parents releasing the competition idea and releasing and going back to what we were so good at when kids were really little of saying that I honor your path and I'm excited to be on this journey with you. And of course, I'm looking to make sure that you're hitting milestones and you know, you're making progress in these areas. But again, I'm going to look at you as yourself and not as how do you fit into this bigger system? And are you checking boxes at the exact same time that the person next to you is? Because that's never going to be the case. They're always going to be on a different path than the other kids. And I think from, especially like a preschool standpoint, 
because largely preschool is something that parents are having a choice in and we're able to ask questions when we go in to decide if it's a preschool program or a daycare program for our kids, ask what they're you know, what are their policies on play? How are the children learning? What's the main vehicle? You know, if they're talking about things like, oh, you know, they sit at desks and they they do this kind of work, but I would ask some questions about that. Where, you know, how are we supporting their emotional development? How are we supporting their play development? How are we supporting their feelings as a whole child rather than just the academic child? I think those are some really great questions to be looking at when you go into a school. Oftentimes, we hear when people go and tour, you know, a daycare and a preschool, it comes back as, well, the curriculum was really great. And the, um, you know, the, they have the kids doing such and such kind of work. And it's like, well, yes, okay. But do the kids feel safe? Do they feel loved? Are they able to explore with their whole body? Are, is it a child-led program or is it a teacher or parent-led program? I think those are some really great things. I know that was kind of a long answer, but I think, and and two very different, two very different ideas, but I think it is a matter of, of reframing how we're the parents looking at early childhood education and the way that we're looking at daycare and preschool programs, if we are able to have that kind of a choice and, and to think critically about our kids and look at them again, as we've been looking at them for the last five years as their own person and to keep that focus as they head into the school years. I love it. And I don't think we uh, know the value of our voice that if we say like, yeah. here's what's important to me, like, yes. what are your goals? And as, as kindergarten teachers, as early childhood educators to say, you know what, here's what's important to me. You know, mm -hmm. you're right. Like so much of what happens in education isn't done by teachers for teachers. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the things that led to the seed certification. I was actually at one point I was sitting in a workshop on self-care for early child educators. And about five minutes into the workshop, I was like, oh, this person's never been in a classroom. Like yeah. that sounds great. If I have a spare 20 minutes for somebody to tap out to or whatever. And like, those are things that never have. And like, I just kept having these experiences over and over. And I was like, oh, they're talking about us, but they're not listening to us. Yes. And I, it, it I ended up, I created what I needed as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we're looking at our power as parents or our power as teachers, I, I it's way more than we assume that it is. Like mm -hmm. I going into kindergarten will say like, what are your goals for my kid this year? And we'll lay out here are mine. Like, yeah. oh, we might have different goals. What the school wants from him and what I want for him might be different. And then it might be an acceptance of, for me of like, what am I willing to um, say like, right, then he doesn't have to be a star student in these things. Cause I don't actually care if he, if he knows X, Y, and Z, um, and can memorize and repeat on command. And I do care about these other things. And is this something that you value too? Um, and even just, I think starting to have those conversations, even if you don't have school choice, even if you can't change the system, but just starting to have those conversations and for teachers to hear this, for teachers to have this conversation with administration of like, here's what we value. Here's what we think is important. And here are the parts that I think aren't as important, but that we're expected to do, uh, right now we're at a teacher shortage. Like you have so much power in saying like, here's what I value. And I think we can use that voice pretty loudly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think 
often with parents, we forget how much the teachers want to hear from us. Mm -hmm. And and we we get kind of almost like the stigma of like, well, I don't want to be that parent and I don't want to bug them. And, you know, they're they're overloaded right now. And, and I don't want to be yet another thing on the plate. There is nothing I love more as a teacher than information from parents. I mm -hmm. love that. I loved getting an email up at the beginning of the year explaining who this child was or a phone call or at the school that I taught at, we tried to do um, meetings with families before the school year started at like a 10 minute meeting so that we could just get on the same page and hear about this child from a point of view, not as an academic person and as the person walking into the classroom, but as the child inside the family and to learn more about the family unit and things like that. And so I think as parents, we're often really afraid to to start those conversations just because we don't want to get labeled and we don't want to be like, you know, a burden. But when you're giving your child up to a teacher, that teacher is going to wholly love that child also along with you. And, and you're going to form a partnership with that teacher. And so form it, give them, give them information, set them up for success. If you know something doesn't work for your child, let them know, Hey, my child is not motivated by X, Y, Z, or, Hey, we found out that, you know, when they're kind of backed into a corner, this is how they react. Tell me that because I'm about to find out. <laughs> and I would much hard rather way. <laughs> know. I would much rather know what's been working or what hasn't been working for years with your family. And I, I want to know what you value. I want to know what your home structure is like. I want to know what they're coming back to each day. I want to know what you're struggling with or what successes you're having with them. Because this is now a partnership and it's now a team. And and being on the same team with a teacher it can be as small as just sending an email and introducing yourself, introducing your child and giving some information about what makes that child tick or, or what goals you, like you said, what goals you have for that child and what goals you have as a family and maybe how you learned as a child, how you're, if there's a spouse, how the spouse or partner learned, if there's another parent, how other children were learning, things like that. The more information that you can give, you're not being a burden you're helping, you're, you're giving us, you know, we have in some cases, 20 to 25, depending on, you know, the classroom and the state kids that we're trying to learn about. And the more information you can give me, it's like, you know, having Cliff's notes on this kid. And, and that is so cool. You feel like you hit the ground running as a teacher instead of starting from day one of being like, what do I need to figure out about you? If you can front load information and and be in contact with that teacher, let them know things that are working and not working, things you're seeing at home all sorts of different pieces of information. You're not being a burden. You're what you're doing is you're helping your child. You're helping us. And, and this is, this will be an even better environment. The more information that we can have. Yes. 7,000 times. Yes. <laughs> you are the expert on your child. They might be the yeah. expert in child development or education. Yeah. You're the expert on your child. Yeah. And it just like if a teacher found something that was working really well for a kid, if they were like, I'm just not going to share that. Like, no, I want to know that, right? Like if yeah. you found something that's really helpful for them in different scenarios, please let me know um, as the parents like that. It, you're absolutely right. Like it's teachers are a part of our village. Yeah. Uh, and I think when we can collaborate and see that, like, we really want the same thing mm -hmm. <laughs> and we love this tiny human, it's huge. And I think that there's a lot of uh, shame, embarrassment, fear that can come up for us as parents of like, well, if I say this is really hard or I'm having, I had a parent at one point I was teaching toddlers, they were one turning two with me and she was like, 
you're always so like calm and chill and there's nine toddlers. And I was like, oh, cause you're seeing me for five minutes at drop off. Like <laughs> come, come on in at 10 30 when we're trying to get outside <laughs> with nine toddlers and all their snow gear and whatever. It's way less calm and chill. You're seeing me at the beginning of the day. I just have a meal. I've got fresh coffee in my body. Like this is not the whole picture. No. And uh, she was like, oh, it's so nice to know that you lose your cool sometimes too. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. <laughs> You're not the only one that's like, sometimes they're annoying, right? Like <laughs> that's real. Like sometimes that's true. And <laughs> it's okay to think that and feel that and whatever. And like the teachers think that parents think that we're all humans doing this. But I think that fear of like, they're going to find out that I don't love every part of this all the time. And it doesn't feel easy all the time is also real. I, when I first started doing these kind of not interviews, but just meetings with parents before the school year started. And, and it was new to me. I, you know, I'd come from other schools that didn't, that didn't prioritize time that way. This school incredibly prioritized, like redid professional develop the professional development week that teachers have before the school year started, they had completely reallocated time. And, and it was incredible just to, you know, prioritize this idea of, you know, having parents have a chance to come in or call on the phone and you have this time to talk about your kid. And, and I remember asking one of the seasoned teachers and I said, bring me up to speed. Like, what's the point of this? And she said, sometimes parents just want a chance to say things about their kid and talk about their kid before you come back and say, your child struggles to listen. You know, they want to be able to say, hey, my child really struggles with, you know, following directions. They want to say that first. They want to have this chance to have their voice heard first. And I remember sitting there in like my first meeting and it was, it was parents just wanted to talk about their kid and just have this chance to like really give you this list of like things about their kid that they're trying and they're struggling with and they're, you know, having successes with. And it, and it I don't think ever in any of those conversations, I'm trying to think back, did a parent come in and really talk about academics? Mm -hmm. They really came in and said things like, you know, last year it was hard for them to make friends. And that's what we're, our goal is for this year. And so anything you can do to help with them making friends would be awesome. And then that, it was just amazing to give parents this voice and this opportunity. And so if your school doesn't do something like that, and most schools I think don't, because it's just the way that time is structured, do that for yourself. Send that email for yourself start a meeting, you know, get in there, especially if you have concerns about your child. And if those concerns, you know, aren't something that is like a diagnosis or on an IEP or that are written down, but you've seen them and you have this concern, you know, I heard from so many principals and school counselors in the last few weeks um, on my Instagram talking about, please come to us and let us know, even if there isn't a diagnosis, even if there isn't a written record right now about these concerns that you're having with your child or that you're seeing, let us know because we, we want to start that. We want to also for placement reasons, we want to place them with the best teacher possible to support that child's development. So again, it's just this, this understanding that there really is this relationship that wants to be formed often with the school. And it's a matter of us being as parents being willing to speak up and to come to the school and to say, I want to talk about my child. And then at the same time, teachers, principals, counselors wanting that information. You are not burdening them. I can't say that enough. You're not burdening them by talking about your child. We want to have that conversation. This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. 
Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE for 20% off your order. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Have you ever been like scrolling the internet and there's all these like tools for calming your child and how to regulate and whatever and you try them and your child just gets amped up or that doesn't work or you find yourself in these cycles where it's like epic meltdown, try to come back from it and you just feel like you're putting out fires all day long. If this is you, you aren't alone and we collaborated with an occupational therapist to create our sensory profile quiz. This is gonna help you learn about what helps your child regulate, what's happening in their unique nervous system. We are all different and figuring out what you're sensitive to or what helps you regulate is the key for actually doing this work, for getting to a regulated state, for having tools for calming down, for having tools for regulation. Head on over to www.seedquiz.com to take the quiz for free. You can take it as many times as you like for as many humans as you'd like. And we will deliver results right to your inbox to get you kickstarted on this journey. Seedquiz.com. What do you think, or what would your dream look like that folks would focus on before their kids go to school? Maybe top three skills you would encourage parents to focus on. Gosh, really top three. You're going to do this to me. (laughs) Sorry, Susie. Well, I know. I think, I think the important thing is first to understand that there's kind of two different, I, I lump kindergarten readiness into two different categories. There's this cognitive academic 
that we really push kids into. And then there's foundational. And because people have so far doubled down on that academic side, I really want to almost triple down on the foundational side. And I often think of kindergarten readiness as, you know, we're building that house, we're building a house and we have to have a solid foundation before we can put up academic walls. If you put up academic walls on a house built out of sand, then there's nothing on the foundation to hold that up, then it will crumble, you know, eventually, you know, that the child can only do so much. They, they need these foundational skills. So I think for me, one of the best things that we can do for kids is to teach them how to talk to adults. I think that that's something that's going to come up a lot in schooling and, and, and to be independent. And so as you take your children out into the world, as you take them, this is so simple, but as you take them to places like Starbucks and Target and, and the playground and and things like that, the more that you can ask them to be the one to ask an adult, if you can go up and ask the barista for water, that would be great. And to help them to understand how to speak to an adult, because that's going to come up so much in school with them speaking to an adult that they may not have a relationship with. And it sounds so, so simple, but again, we're just trying to make this transition into independent life as easy as possible. It's very hard to learn academic skills in school when you're struggling to get your needs met by an adult, when you're struggling to talk to an adult. If you have a question about your math paper, but you don't know how to engage with an adult to talk to them, then that's going to be really hard for you to get your help with math. So uh, that translates as simple, as silly as it sounds to going up to the target worker and saying, excuse me, can you help me find the Legos? And that's, again, that sounds so simple, but it really is just this really big skill. And, And it goes also with asking questions to gain information that I always would tell my students and I tell my children, you know, it's smart people ask questions. They, they've gotten that information because they were willing to ask a question. And if we're willing, if we just sit there, we're not going to get the information we need. So this all goes with being able to ask questions and being able to ask questions to adults. I think that, that learning how to self-entertain is honestly one of the most important skills that we can give kids before they go to school. And as you know, that's learned through play. You know, I always say that school, I love teaching, but school isn't really the most exciting place all the time. It, you know, it, it, it gets boring, you know, and kids need this ability to self-entertain and they need to be the ability to keep themselves occupied when things get slow. We often translate that into saying like, well, they're bored in school, you know, they're not challenged or they're, you know, they're this, they're that, but you know, everybody gets bored in school. It, it's much more exciting to be out at recess. It's much more exciting to be on the playground and it, than to be in reading class or to be an advanced trig when you're in high school. These are, you know, no matter who you are, life gets boring. But learning how to keep your brain going and keep yourself stimulated and keep yourself engaged in the action, that's really, really, really important. And kids learn that by being able to initiate and start play on their own. That's where that that happens. It it happens through their ability to play. And so if you can give your child throughout the day structured times where they're able to play on their own, again, we get to have the benefit of like, oh, I get to do the dishes because they're off playing. But what you're also doing as far as school readiness goes is you're giving that child an opportunity to learn how to keep their mind going when life slows down. And that's a huge part of school is being able 
to find learning in all sorts of different spots. It, it, it's unbelievably crucial. And then the the last one, I, I would wanna, say- Can is, I pause you real oh, quick? I think, I think I'm what just you're- long-winded. No, no, no. I love it. Love it. Well, when you were talking about that one, there's in the last like decade-ish, we've added a fifth component to emotional intelligence. There were prior to this four, self-awareness, self-reg, um, social skills, and empathy. And the fifth most recent is intrinsic motivation, intrinsic mm. versus extrinsic. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're speaking to there yeah. is that it, it's, it's not just what do I do when I'm bored and how do I keep that mind busy, but it's fostering intrinsic motivation. Yeah. I don't need that extrinsic reward to keep going because mm-hmm. eventually the extrinsic reward runs out. Um, and then you need another one and another one to keep going, to keep learning, to be curious. And when we have access to independent play, and I, I love that you brought up the like dishes example, because I think it's an easy way to say when they're really young, like, oh, I'm going to do the dishes. And it gives you a set thing. They know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It's not like, I'm just going to ignore you for fun right now. Like <laughs> I, so that you can build in like motivation. Like I'm going to do yeah. this task. And, and also then that means I'm not doing it at nap time when maybe yeah. I need to chill. And so I'm going to do this task and allowing them to be bored, to, to find that intrinsic motivation. And at first they might be on your leg or they might be crying or it might be hard. And the more consistently you do those other tasks um, throughout the house, they will find this intrinsic motivation where they're not saying like, look, are you proud of me? Are you happy with what I'm doing? Do you value me? Do I still have worth to you? They're going to start to say, I have worth to me and Mm -hmm. I value me and I'm proud of me without always looking externally. Like you're fostering something so great from an emotional intelligence perspective when you are allowing that independence. And piggybacking off of that, when we look in the classroom at intrinsic motivation versus, you know, extrinsic, it's, The difference between a child waiting for the teacher to tell them the answer versus Mm -hmm. the child going to find the answer. And after the school years run out, we're tasked as, you know, adults to constantly be finding information for ourselves. But if you've spent the last 12 years or 18 years being always told what to do, told the information, told the answer, told how to fill in the blank, told what the problem is, that's going to be a harder transition out of if we can spend these kind of 18, these formative years teaching a child, your thoughts are valuable, your curiosity is valuable, your thoughts are valuable, and letting them be intrinsically motivated to find more inter- information rather than sitting there and waiting for an adult or the teacher to turn and say, the answer is blank, or this is how you build this bridge. This is how you create this. This is how you do this math problem. If instead we can twist it just a little bit and that goes with play and, and the intrinsic motivation to let the child see how much value the child has. You have value in finding information. You have value in creating your own path. You have value in figuring this out. That translates into the classroom for a child that is not waiting for the teacher to tell them the answer. They're off trying to figure it out. I don't need them to tell me. They said, how do you think you build a bridge? I'm going to go figure out how to build a bridge versus another child who has been set into a more rigorous, direct instruction, teacher-led approach, 
a parent-led approach is waiting for the teacher to tell them, here is how you build a bridge. You take this, you put this, here's counterweights, here's the balance system. And, and again, when we, when we think about how's that going to translate for the entirety of the child's life, then, you know, how do you ever learn more if you're always just waiting for someone to tell you the answer? And it's a problem solver no. and, it, and it becomes your inner narrative that you're not good at that. Yeah. I can't do this. I'm not good at it versus the confidence of like, yeah, I can figure it out. Yeah. yeah. I, I, this was one of the greatest gifts my parents ever gave me it was mm-hmm. like, we didn't have money. There was no like extra support funds. And I came to them at like 14 and was like, I want to study abroad. And they were like, totally. Yeah. So we can't fund this program for you, but let's figure it out. Like, how could you do this? And I did a whole bunch of things to raise money and figure it out and whatever, and get myself to Austria for six months. But it was their belief that like, they didn't start with like, no, we can't afford that. They were like, yeah, sure. How are you going to do it? What's Mm -hmm. it going to look like? And their belief that I could figure it out. And like over and over and over, like that was the through line in my life was their belief in me to figure something out. And And at a three-year-old level that starts with, I believe you can figure out what to do with your time right now while I'm doing the dishes. I believe in you. I can't wait to see what you come up with. (laughs) And that starts right. I mean, it's so simple. It starts right there. Yeah. Love it. Okay. So I cut you off for your third. You're fine. No, you're fine. It was a good, it was a great tangent. Um, my last one, again, it's, it's complicated, but kids need to know how to fail and to try again. They need to know that it's okay to fail and that failing isn't the end of something. It's just part of a process that there really isn't ever like an end goal. You don't really ever get to the end of something and go, well, that's it. We move on. That it's not a reflection of them as a person that, that they have the chance to try and to do hard work and to keep going. And that at the home environment, again, harping into play, it goes with play. It goes with board games. Playing board games with a child is a great way to help them learn to fail and making sure that you win when you win. Mm-hmm. Let them lose when they lose. It also has to do with showing them how we fail. Oftentimes kids get this opinion of parents and adults that everything works out perfectly for us and we always have the answers. And the reason that they get that idea is because they don't hear our inner monologue. They don't hear the times that we fail. They don't hear that we burnt the dinner. They don't hear that we put the flour in at the wrong time. Ah, I, I messed that up. So say that, say it out loud, talk through your failures. I, I was editing something last night and my daughter came in and she looked at it and she said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm, I, I'm editing, you know, this book, the, my program. And I said, that the copy editor sent it back and she goes, well, did you make mistakes? And I said, tons of them. I made tons of mistakes. And I said, so now I'm going back. They found all my mistakes. I'm going back and I'm, I'm working back through them. And she kind of looked at me like, oh, mom makes mistakes in writing too. Just like I made a mistake in writing earlier today. This is a normal part of the process. Of course, she didn't say all of that, but I I could see it on her face that, wow, okay, it's okay to make mistakes when you write. And I think if you can just tomorrow, as you work through your day, if you are solving a problem, solve it out loud. If you're trying to figure out why the dishwasher didn't start running, could you talk it out loud? Oh man, I forgot to start it. Or I think I hit the wrong button. If you, if, if you lose your car keys, talk about it, talk about the fact that you you're so frustrated. You always lose these and you can't figure out where, where you put them. 
talk through your failures with your kids. They need to see what's going on and they need to hear what's going on inside your head. They need to know that this is normal, that failing is something that we all do all day long and that that's a part of life and we just keep going. It's not a reflection of you as a person. And if, again, if you translate that, you know, we can see that at the kindergarten level, we can, you know, we know what that looks like with little kids, but let's, let's turn that kid up to 16 and they've made a mistake. Do they know that mistake is not a reflection of them? Do they know it's okay to keep trying? Do they know that, that this doesn't mean the world is over? Do they know that? They need to, at that age, it's hard. And they we're talking about big, heavy, meaty stuff. And it starts in these early years that going into kindergarten and, and, and in this early childhood range that they understand that it's okay that the, something didn't work out for you. It's okay that you had to try really hard to get that skill. That This is all part of life. But that's one of, that's honestly one of the biggest ones with school because school is full of failures and that's okay. But yeah, it's life whether or not you get back up. Totally. I love it. Jess Leahy wrote uh, The Gift of Failure. She was on the podcast episode 103, maybe something like that. Um, if you want to dive into that, her book's incredible and, and really looks at how do we teach them how to make mistakes and fail mm -hmm. and try new things and, and not have fear around that. If you're interested in diving deeper into that topic as a whole, folks who are tuning in, love that. Susie. I'm going to throw one landmine topic at you before we wrap this up. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is going to be a little sound bite. This is the, this is the sound bite. This is oh the quote gosh. quote. Um, what is your opinion on, in this, I guess, what's your privileged opinion? Because I think there's privilege in this yeah. question in and of itself of having kids enter kindergarten young versus holding them back. The privilege being like, if you're paying for childcare and <laughs> kindergarten's free, like, there's yeah. privilege in even being able to say, I'm going to hold my kid back. Um, you have a summer birthday, you have an August birthday, whatever. Like what's, what's your opinion? What's your dream world? If it was all free and accessible, if it was all free and accessible. My dream world would be send your child when your child's ready. Um, but that's not the case, you know? And, and I understand from a parenting standpoint that we look at kindergarten and we see very real that this is free childcare. And, and I absolutely get that. And that if we, if that is what you need and that is what's going to make your family tick, I, I, I couldn't agree more because it is, it's, this is free education. But if we're talking about, especially early entrancing children, because that comes up a lot is, do I send my child early to kindergarten? Mm -hmm. And my plea to parents is to stop looking at kindergarten. And I say this with kindergarten readiness. And I say this with kindergarten entrance, we need to be looking at the total of the child's educational path. This child is going to be going through school until they're 18, possibly 22, 25. I don't know how long they're going to be going through this path, but it's not just about kindergarten. So as you're looking at your child's age, again, we're not thinking about the fact that this is free childcare and, and how wonderful and amazing that would be. Um, but if we're looking at the child's total path in education, how old will that child be in middle school? as they navigate social media for the first time? How old will that child be in high school as they start to drive a car? Um, will they be the first to drive? Will they be the last to drive? How will that feel? How will that look at, at college graduation, at high school graduation? How old will that child be? 
where will they be when they start college? If they choose to go to college and their college starts middle of August, how old will that child be when they go off to college? I think we get really hung up on kindergarten and this idea that, well, they're ready for kindergarten. So if I don't send them now, they're going to be really bored in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And that's such a, um, a misunderstanding of what kindergarten is and, and how kindergarten behaves because, you know, again, like I said earlier, all kids get bored in school. This is, this is life, but really it's about looking at that whole child and just like I said earlier, we have to stop considering the path of every other child and just start to look at our child. How will this look for our family? How will this look for this child as they move through the education system? What age will they be in third grade? What age will they be in sixth grade? What age will they be in sophomore year? What age will they be in senior year? And it is a very privileged question to ask and to be able to have the choice of an answer is very privileged. Um, but my biggest urge is to stop looking at kindergarten and to stop thinking just about kindergarten. We have got to start thinking long-term about these kids, particularly when we're talking about children that are being early entranced into kindergarten. I think that you hit the nail on the head that a lot of folks are like, well, they're going to be bored. Like mm -hmm. she's so smart. I just heard this literally yeah. two weeks ago. She's so smart and she's going to be bored. I think she might even be bored this year in kindergarten. I think she's definitely going to be bored next year. And the reality is that like from the teacher perspective, differentiation is real always. And always. In that like, I don't have, it's not like all my kids are at the same place mm -hmm. in all of their academic skills. That's never the case. So we're always differentiating. And our job as the teacher is to differentiate to that kid's skill level. It's not your job as the parent to make sure that they're going to be in the right academic classroom for them. It's a teacher's job to differentiate academically for them, whatever classroom they're in. Yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. It's and I love what you said. It's the teacher's job to differentiate academically. It's not our job as parents to decide what uh, essentially, you know, to try to fiddle around and try to figure out, well, academically, where are they at? Kindergarten is a mixed bag. I taught kindergarten. We have kids who come in having no history in school. They've never been to school. We have ones coming in with from a homeschool preschool, ones from co-op, ones from daycare, ones from full-time daycare, full-time preschool. This is an incredibly mixed bag. There's nothing more mixed than kindergarten. And it's it's a really thrilling grade level to teach because you do get this unbelievable mix of children. And one of the things I've, I've been trying really hard to explain to parents is that there is a incredible difference between a child who is gifted and a child who's been gifted advantages as mm. they've been raised. And those are two very different things. There are truly gifted children out there. I had one child in all my years of teaching, one who I, I can look back and say, this was an absolutely gifted child. She was incredible to watch, learn. She was incredible to see her mind moved. Ironically, she was never bored in school because <laughs> she was always able to figure out what to do next or, or, or you know, to handle her life. But she was very gifted. I had tons of kids who were gifted amazing advantages. They were gifted safe places to live. They were gifted access to food. They were gifted soccer practices and ballet classes and a parent who could read to them every night before bed and attachment to caregivers. And they ended up coming into kindergarten having amazing amounts of knowledge because of what they were gifted advantage-wise. 
And what we see in children is after a couple of years at school, the kids who came in having not been gifted advantages versus the kids who came in having been gifted lots of advantages, by around the third grade, fourth grade-ish, you know, now those kids who hadn't been to school before have been to school three or four years and things start to really level out. And, and the advantages are, they're, they're still, they're definitely still there. The advantages of a safe home and a home with access to food, those are always going, you know, that's always going to be there. But as far as the academic part of it, we see those advantages start to kind of wear out and the playing field really levels and the kids all kind of start to move a little bit more on the same-ish trajectory in their education. So that's another piece to the puzzle to look at is, you know, yes, your your child is very smart and they're very bright. They were gifted a lot of advantages from you being a, a very involved parent who's listening to a social emotional podcast. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if we're sitting down following parenting accounts on Instagram, then that's a very involved parent and, and where their involved parents, children thrive. They've been gifted beautiful advantages. And that is something that you should be so proud and happy that you can give to them and what a gift to give. But as we're looking at, again, the total of a child's educational path, we can't be so uh, nearsighted as to say, well, it's only about kindergarten. It's only about their age starting kindergarten. It's only about the readiness starting kindergarten. We must look at life readiness. We need to look at, at school readiness. We need to look at whether or not they're going to be ready to stand on their own two feet without us standing right next to them, hovering over their shoulders and, and helping them make the best decision. And, and again, that's going to look different for each child and it's going to look different for each family. And going back to how we started this conversation, it's about understanding that every child is on their own path. And instead of looking at the school system as the factory line that it, it has become, that we think about the way that they're growing and developing as individual people. And are they making progress within their self? And are we seeing that progress happen? And to be so unbelievably proud of who that child is becoming. And as they enter the school system, to continue to keep your eyes laser focused on that child and their development, their progress day over day and month over month and year over year, and honoring their growth, not just academically, but as the whole person they are meant to become. I love this so much. Thank you. <laughs> just like, I have no comment. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Susie. You're a real gem. Where can people follow you, learn from you, all that jazz? You can find me on Instagram. I'm at busy toddler and on my website is busytoddler.com. She's incredible. Such a fantastic follow. Do yourself a favor and go do that if you aren't already. Susie, thank, thank you. you for joining me. I'm so glad you asked. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the transcript at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community over on Instagram hanging out every day with more free content? Come join us at seed.and.so. Take a screenshot of you tuning in, share it on the gram, and tag seed.and.so to let me know your key takeaway. If you're digging this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We love collaborating with you to raise emotionally intelligent humans. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence 
whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. 